Turn with me to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 9, we'll be looking at verses 8 through 17. The Gospel of John, chapter 9, verses 8 through 17, and considering eyewitness testimony. The Gospel of John, chapter 9, verse 8, give attention to God's holy word. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore, they said to him, How were your eyes opened? He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siolam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Then they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened the eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. They said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ordinance of preaching. We pray, Lord, now that you would anoint this time of preaching by your Spirit, that we might see wondrous things from your law, and that we might be fed and built up in our most holy faith. And we ask you to do all of this for the sake of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Perhaps you've heard the story of the four Hindu men. One day there were four Hindu men, and there was a large animal standing in front of them. And these Hindu men uh, were all blind, and they start touching this animal to try and figure out what this thing is. And the first Hindu man is touching uh, one part of this animal, the leg, and he says, oh, it's it's a tree. This is a tree. Uh, One of the other Hindu men was holding the trunk of this animal, and he says, it's a snake. This is a large snake. The other man was rubbing the side of this animal, and he says, no, this is a wall. And one of the other men was holding the tail of this animal, and he says, no, it's a rope. Now, obviously, what they're trying to figure out is the identity of the elephant. But they have difficulty figuring this out because they're blind. They can't actually tell what this thing is because they can't see what this animal is is. As we've begun looking at John chapter 9, we've already seen the miracle of healing that Christ restores eyesight to a man born blind. But as we noted last time we looked at this chapter, and as we're going to begin to see in this uh, this section, physical blindness in the scriptures is often an illustration of spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness is something that God will strike a people with, and when people are struck with spiritual blindness, 
Even though they have eyewitness testimony, they cannot discern the glory of God standing in front of them. In fact, what we're going to see in this passage is even in the face of eyewitness testimony, the Pharisees cannot see the glory of God in Christ because they are committed to the doctrines of men and not the commandments of God. Even in the face of eyewitness testimony, the Pharisees cannot see the glory of God in Christ because they are committed to the doctrines of men and not the commandments of God. Well, uh, whenever you're dealing with eyewitness testimony, you're dealing with a trial of some kind. There, there is a court that's gathered to try and determine what happened. And obviously, when you're in a trial, there are questions asked. When an eyewitness is brought forward to give testimony, the lawyers will ask questions, the judges will ask questions. And what we have in this passage are two sets of questions. The first set of questions is from his neighbors, verses 8 through 12, the questions of the people. And then in verses 13 through 17, the questions of the Pharisees. So we're going to just notice two things in this passage, the questions of the people and then the questions of the Pharisees. Now, as we begin to look at this passage, we need to keep in mind the context of this passage. This miracle happened in a local context, and in this local context, the way the Jews were organized is you would have local synagogues, and in these local communities, the synagogue was the gathering of the Jews for religious purposes. Think about it this way. The synagogue was, as it were, the local church of the Jews at this time. What we're going to find later on in this passage, uh, in verse 35, Jesus finds out that they have cast this man out. They have excommunicated this man from the local synagogue. Now, what are we to make of this? Well, the Pharisees in this context, the ones that Jesus is going, or that the blind man is talking to, are church officers. They are local elders of a local congregation, and they've been given authority over this local congregation. This is going to be very important as we go through this passage and see how this story develops. But we need first to ask ourselves a question. Where does spiritual blindness come from? I've already mentioned it a little bit in the theme of this passage, but I want you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah chapter 29 describes for us where spiritual blindness comes from and why spiritual blindness comes upon people. Isaiah chapter 29, starting in verse 9, we're going to see in this passage that when people set up the doctrines of men, over the commandments of God, God strikes that people with spiritual blindness. Look at what Isaiah says in verse 9. Pause and wonder. Blind yourselves 
and be blind. They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. For the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, namely, the prophets. And he has covered your heads, namely, the seers. Now keep in mind in this Old Testament context, the prophets and the seers functioned like local pastors. These would have been the men in the local synagogues who were preaching the word of God to the people. They were in the office of shepherd and pastor. The Lord says to these men, I have poured out the spirit of blindness upon you, specifically upon the leadership of these local churches. Continue reading in verse 11. The whole vision has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one who is literate, saying, read this, please. And he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. Then the book is delivered to one who is illiterate, saying, read this, please. And he says, I am not literate. Notice the second piece of Isaiah 29. The leaders have been blinded, and now the result is the people come to the leadership and say, interpret this for us. Tell us what this means. And the leadership says, we can't. We don't know what's going on. The book is sealed. Or they're illiterate. They can't read the book. Notice the movement. From the people to the leadership. Continue reading. Verse 13. Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, And their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. Therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. Now, in Isaiah 29, we need to have this context in mind before we return to John chapter 9 and simply notice the judgment that Isaiah is describing. When a people teaches the commandments of men as the way to fear the Lord, the Lord pours upon them the spirit of blindness, specifically upon the leadership, the seers, the prophets, the wise men, the prudent. They are given over to a spirit of blindness such that they can no longer lead the people. Now we turn back to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, we begin with the questions of the people. Now remember that in John chapter 9 verse 3, Christ tells his disciples why this man was born blind. And the purpose of this man's blindness is so that the works of God should be revealed in him. Now, what has just happened is that Christ has healed this man, and in healing this man, he has shown forth the glory of God. This man, because of his healing, is a walking testimony to the glory and the mercy of God upon people who need healing. He is an eyewitness to the power of God to heal from the effects of sin. Now, he's in the midst of his community in verse 8. And they began asking these questions. Notice, the neighbors and those previously who had seen that he was blind said, Is this not he who sat and begged? This is a marvelous thing that they've witnessed. Remember, this man has been blind from birth. 
And so for his whole life in this community, people have been passing him on the street, watching him beg. Perhaps they've given him money. Perhaps they've helped him in some way. But now, miraculously, he's healed. And this is something remarkable for them that they stop and ask, wait a second, you used to be the one that begged, but now you have your eyesight back. They're confused by this. And so they begin to ask these questions. This is also what happens in our lives when somebody is touched by the power of the gospel. Today, we don't often see miraculous healings from blindness, but what we do see is miraculous healings from alcoholism. We see miraculous healings from anger. We see miraculous healings from pride. We see people growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus, and their sins are done with. Their sins are dealt with, and this might provoke these kind of questions. Let's say in your children, when they were younger, they were disobedient and mouthy, and then at some point they grow in maturity, they begin to show respect. They begin to praise Jesus on their own. Let's say in your marriages, your spouses may be surly and unloving, and then over time they begin to grow and they're changed. Likewise, we would ask these kind of questions. And so the the people around him ask, and there's confusion about him. Some said, this is he. Others said, he is like him. He said, I am he. Notice how the man is put in the position of giving testimony to the grace of God. He answers their questions by simply saying, I am the one that was blind, but now I see. I am the one who was arrogant, but now I'm humble. I am the one who was a drunkard, but now I'm sober. I did used to be this way, but now I'm this way. And this is a powerful testimony. I want to encourage you in your personal lives as you're going about your life, these kind of testimonies are very powerful because deep down, people know sin is unstoppable. People know their own sins and the sins they see in other people are unstoppable according to the power of man. And one of the greatest miracles that people can see is a genuinely righteous Christian. A Christian whose heart has been changed to actually love the Lord and to follow his commandments. That's a marvel to people in the world. And this man gives his personal testimony. Then they begin to ask him. Therefore they said to him, how were your eyes opened? He answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay, anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siolam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Then they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. Now, as they begin to ask him more about how this happened, he gives them a testimony of the power of Christ. And he says, he told me to do this. I went and did that, and I've received my sight. Now, keep in mind the context, as I've already mentioned. The purpose of this miracle is to show forth the glory of God. This was a remarkable miracle in this community. The people are so astounded by this miracle, they don't know what to do with this. The man has simply given the testimony, and they, they don't know what to do with this. They don't know where this man is. They want to find him, and he simply gives witness to what Christ has done in their life. 
First off, do not despise the day of small miracles in your lives. Do not despise the day when you find small victories over sin. When you find small repentance and small growth in your heart, the heart of your children, the heart of your family, the heart of your co-workers. That is the glory of God showing itself in your life. That is, as Christ says, the work of God being revealed in you. Don't despise the day of small things. Marvel at these things and go to Christ for more of these things. And when you see this in other people, congratulate them. Praise the Lord for it. When you see your spouse or your children or your friends or your co-workers growing in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, glory with them. But don't stay there. Go to the church. Notice now that the people take this man to the Pharisees. And this is where we begin to see the effect of spiritual blindness. Notice in verse 13, they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Verse 14, John notices for us, Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Now at this point we need to pause for a second and unpack a little bit the Pharisees' teaching about the Sabbath, and from that, more broadly, what does it mean to teach the doctrines of men instead of the commandments of God? First, what is the true doctrine of the Sabbath? Christ tells us in Matthew chapter 12 that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So one of the fundamental principles about Sabbath keeping is that it's intended for man's good. The Sabbath is given by God to man for his rest, recuperation, and spiritual refreshment. Now, in order to keep the Sabbath, there are certain things required. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, where we first meet the Sabbath command. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. In order for man to rest and to be spiritually rejuvenated, these things are required of us to keep the Sabbath rightly. First off, notice that the commandment begins with remember. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Westminster Divines are very wise when they highlight this aspect of the fourth commandment because as you and I know, there's a lot of stuff that happens between the Sabbath, isn't it? There's a lot of things that go on from one Sunday to the next, and it can be easy to forget that the Sabbath is coming. One of the other things that this implies is that we are to plan for the Sabbath. We are to think ahead and anticipate what is the Sabbath for, how are we going to keep it, and how can I discharge my worldly cares so that I don't have to worry about them on the Sabbath day. But continue reading. The Lord says, six days you shall, do, you shall uh, uh, do labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, 
nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. One of the other things that's required on, uh, on the Sabbath in order to keep the Sabbath is that we refrain from our worldly labors. Now, this just simply makes sense, doesn't it? If you're going to pray in the morning, you have to turn the radio off. If you're going to read the scriptures, you have to turn the TV off. If you're going to actually devote yourself to the Lord and approach him through the means of grace, you have to put all of that other stuff aside. Well, if it's true on Monday in the prayer closet, how much more true is it on Sunday when the whole day is to be set apart for God's worship? So we are to remember the Sabbath day. We are to keep it holy by refraining from our worldly labors, putting those things aside and not engaging in those things. Here's a little bit of practical guidance for us. One, use the phone as, least, as little as possible. You, you don't need your phone on Sunday, not as much as we think we do. Um, turn the TV off on Sunday. Have a plan for what you're going to do on Sunday. Morning worship, lunchtime, maybe some fellowship, maybe family worship, maybe a nap, maybe a little recreation in the yard, and then evening worship and closing out the day. Have a plan for Sunday. Turn off the electronics. Also, devote yourself to family prayers, private prayers, reading the scriptures, catechizing your children. These are all good things to do on the Lord's Day. One last thing that the Puritans did, which was very good, one of the most helpful things you can do on Sunday afternoon is review with your family the morning sermon. Talk about it with the people who you're having lunch with. Talk about it with your children. Review what was said and what stood out to you during the sermon. This is one of the ways that we can meditate, as we learned in adult Sunday school, about meditating on the things that God gives to us. This is also one of the ways that we reinforce things in our memory by talking about and rehearsing these things. Well, finally, the commandment closes with verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. The last thing that's required for keeping the Sabbath is to remember you're following God's example. God himself kept the Sabbath. God himself refrained from working on the seventh day. John Calvin, in commenting on this, has a brilliant comment. He says, to know that we are imitating God's own actions is a great spur to our own obedience. To know that this is how God himself ordered his week is one of the great motivations to keep the Sabbath. So this is just a, just a brief overview of the true doctrine of the Sabbath. Remember it, put aside worldly care, and remember that God did the same thing. Also, God puts a special blessing upon the Sabbath. You see what it says in verse 11? Therefore God rested and blessed the Sabbath day. The word blessing is simply another way to talk about a benediction. God put a special benediction on the Sabbath. Let me encourage you as you try to keep the Sabbath, if you want to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus, 
Be more serious about Sabbath keeping rightly according to the word, and you will experience God's blessing over time throughout your life. Well, now we return to John chapter 9 to look at the Pharisees' doctrine of the Sabbath. John's pointed out for us in verse 14, this was a Sabbath day when the Pharisees, uh, when Jesus had done this, and uh, yeah, this was a, a Sabbath day when Jesus had done this. This is going to come up again in verse 16. The Pharisees will accuse Christ and say, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Now, now what's going on here? Many have taken verses like this and they'll say, we don't have to keep the Sabbath anymore because Jesus didn't keep the Sabbath. Look at John chapter 9, verse 16. He didn't keep the Sabbath. That's not quite what's happening here. What's going on is the Pharisees are accusing Christ of violating the Pharisaical interpretation of the Sabbath. Christ is not violating God's commandments. He's violating the doctrines of men that the Pharisees had set up. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. There's two episodes. I won't, we won't go through all of the episodes. Uh, chapter 12, verse 1, where Christ is engaging with the Pharisees once again on the doctrine of the Sabbath. Now, what's ironic about Matthew chapter 12 is that it comes right after Matthew chapter 11. And in Matthew chapter 11, the, Matthew has put at the end of chapter 11 this statement. Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew, in his wisdom, puts at the end of Matthew chapter 11 a statement about what it really means to keep the Sabbath. To keep the Sabbath means to commune with the Lord Jesus Christ and you will find rest for your souls. Now we go to chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place, there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Notice very importantly verse 7. Christ says you would not have condemned the guiltless. What Christ is telling the Pharisees is that you accuse them of breaking the Sabbath, but in my eyes, as the Lord of the Sabbath, they are guiltless. Why are they guiltless? Well, What the disciples are doing is, in this agrarian setting, there were agricultural and grain fields all over the place. 
And as you were walking along the path and you began to get hungry, it was lawful for you to pluck some of the grain and eat it as you went down the road. What the Pharisees said, because in the Old Testament, you were supposed to keep the Sabbath during seed time and harvest, meaning you were not allowed to put your sickle into the grain. You could not harvest grain on the Sabbath day. That would have been work. That would have been labor. Well, the Pharisees went further than that and said that you're not even allowed to pluck the heads of grain for a snack as you walk down the road. That's what the disciples are doing. And so the Pharisees said they're violating the Sabbath. Returning to John chapter 9. This was the Pharisaical teaching on the Sabbath. Now I want you to notice what the Pharisees were doing. They took one of God's good commandments. Keep the Sabbath day, do no work on it. And then they went to an extreme with that good commandment. God told us not to work on the Sabbath. That means you're not allowed to carry your mat, like they said to the paralytic. That means you're not allowed to pluck grain to satisfy your hunger. That means you're not even allowed to heal the sick on the Sabbath day. They took God's commandment and went to an extreme with it. They took God's commandment and began to enforce it out of balance with the rest of the commandments. Now we can return to John chapter 9 and see what happens. They brought him to the Pharisees. It was on the Sabbath in verse 15. The Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. Now the Pharisees come and their spiritual blindness comes out. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Notice what's happening here with the Pharisees. Because Christ has violated the commandments of men, the Pharisees accuse him of violating the commandments of God. You see the language that they use. He doesn't keep the Sabbath, meaning he's a sinner. The great tragedy of this is not only that they are being legalistic, but in this legalism, they are blinded to the glory of God in the miracle that's standing right in front of them. The man who was blind, whom all of his neighbors brought to the Pharisees, they said, hey, this man was blind, now he can see. And apparently this Jesus is the one who's done it. All the Pharisees can think about is, oh, he violated the Sabbath. This, this can't be a man from God because he violated the Sabbath. And so they're blinded. They're blinded to the power of God in this man's life, they cannot see the glory of God in Christ. Matthew 23, Christ, uh, turn with me to Matthew 23. Christ pronounces woes on the Pharisees for this feature of themselves. I won't read the whole passage, but as you read Matthew 23, you find again and again Christ calls them blind guides. He says constantly to them, verse 16, Woe to you blind guides. Verse 23, Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you paved tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. 
These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. This is the effect of legalism and Pharisaical legalism in particular. It makes people spiritually blind and they will strain out a gnat and swallow a camel of sin. These Pharisees will strain out the gnat of Sabbath breaking and they'll swallow the camel of unbelief and not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Returning to John chapter 9. They said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how could a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was division among them. Spiritual blindness is a real thing today. There are many spiritually blind in the church today. Have you ever asked yourself, uh, maybe in particular with the Presbyterian Church in America and some of the spiritual issues they're dealing with, Sometimes I've asked myself, you look at the situation and you think, there are ministers in the PCA who are telling people that they identify as homosexuals. They say this publicly, and you sometimes scratch your heads like, why can't they see this? Why can't they discern that this is a problem? Likewise, in the OPC, we have our own problems. In, in the OPC, it's not so much homosexuality. It's a problem of feminism and what might turn into women's ordination. We have women in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church who are teaching things publicly that is everything short of ordaining women. The, the way that some of these people teach and the way that they talk it's all the same arguments for ordaining women to the ministerial office. They won't go that far yet, but that's where their doctrine leads. And sometimes you may scratch your heads and think, how can the leadership of the OPC not see these things? How can they not see the problem? Well, I think it comes down to spiritual blindness. I think it comes down to this dynamic that in the PCA, in the OPC, the Southern Baptist Church as well, there are doctrines of men that the church is more committed to than the commandments of God. And what is that doctrine of men? Today, we don't have a problem with Sabbath legalism. That's not the problem. We don't even have the problem that, uh, say, the Church of Christ has. You know, the Bible says you need to be baptized. Church of Christ says, yeah, you should be baptized. And if you're not baptized, you're not saved. See, they take God's commandment and go to an extreme. That's not the problem in the OPC or in the PCA or in the Southern Baptist Church. The problem in our churches, I think, is that we've adopted what's called the 11th commandment. Some of you have heard this before. The 11th commandment is simply saying, thou shalt never say anything that's offensive. Thou shalt never give offense to another brother or sister in the church. That commandment has now become the standard of righteousness that if you violate that commandment, people will neglect everything else that you're saying. If you violate the Sabbath, like Jesus did, 
People will be blinded to the truth of what you are saying. I think this is the dynamic in our churches today, especially in the climate in which we live. We live in the climate of microaggressions, of grievance culture, of oppressed and oppressor, and people are highly sensitive to being personally offended. And this commandment works the same way as the Pharisaical commandment. You see, here's the dynamic. They take one of God's commandments and they make it an extreme. They exaggerate it to the exclusion of all other commandments. What does God's word tell us about how we should speak? We should speak with love. Paul tells us that all of our speech should be seasoned with grace. The book of Proverbs tells us that a harsh word turns away wrath, that we should speak seasonably, that the words of the wise are like healing ointment, like apples of gold in settings of silver. The Bible puts a high premium on how we speak. But you see, the problem is, when you make that the only commandment, when you make that the only thing that's important, now it becomes a doctrine of men. And spiritual blindness sets in and people simply cannot see. Remember also what I said from Isaiah 29 and in this passage. It's the Pharisees who are blind. In Isaiah 29, it was the prophets, the seers, the wise, and the prudent who were unable to see. This is an extremely dangerous situation because the leadership of the church is given to lead the church, to direct the flock under God's guidance. And if the leadership is blind, what did Christ say? If the blind lead the blind, they both fall into a ditch. And so this is a very dangerous situation for the church in America today. And so you need to pray. You need to pray for your leadership that they would have eyes to see. But more importantly, myself, your local elders, all those who hold office in the church would teach the commandments of God and not the doctrines of men. Because you see, it is the commandments of God is how we are to fear God. That's how we are to serve God through His commandments, not the doctrines of men. Well, John concludes this section with a little ironic hint about where this chapter is going. Look at what he says in verse 17. They said to the blind man again. Now, wait a second. I I thought this man had his eyesight restored. Why does John call him a blind man in verse 17? In verse 13, they call him, John calls him, he who formerly was blind. Now in verse 17, he calls him a blind man again. John is now transitioning with an ironic use of blind. He says, the Pharisees ask the blind man, wink, wink, what do you say of him because he opened your eyes? And this blind man has spiritual sight. Look at what he says. Well, he's a prophet. Plain as day, this man's a prophet. If he can heal the blind, he's come from God, and he is a prophet. The Pharisees can't see this. But this simple man who experienced the power of Christ is able to say he is a prophet. Now, we'll conclude with this. I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, 
If you have experienced the power of Christ in your life, you, as John will say in his first letter, have the witness in yourself. You already have eyewitness testimony of the power of the gospel in your own life. If you've been healed from spiritual blindness, if you've been healed from your sins, if you've been healed from unbelief or any of the other violations of God's law, God has given you firsthand eyewitness testimony of his power. Hold on to it. Hold on to what God has done in your life and in your heart, just as this man does. Now, we're going to see later on in this passage, because this man is convinced that Jesus is a prophet, he gets excommunicated. He's going to get kicked out of the church because he will not submit to this blind leadership. That choice may be coming for all of us one day. That choice may be something we have to make. Is the truth of God true, or is the leadership that is blind true? That choice may come to all of us, and the only way that we can endure it is the way this man endured it by experiencing the power of Christ in his own life. So how do you do that? Using the means of grace, praying unto God daily, keeping his Sabbath day holy the way he commands us to keep it holy, and, as Deuteronomy says, getting yourself a new heart, no longer being rebellious, but submitted to his yoke, because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work of the Lord Jesus, and we thank you that he has delivered us from all of our sins, that he's displayed the power of his gospel in our lives. We pray that you would show us more and more of that power in healing us of our sicknesses, circumcising our hearts, and giving us pliable necks. We pray, O Lord, that you would allow us to take the yoke of Christ upon us, that we might find rest for our souls, and we pray that you would open the eyes of the leadership of your church, that they would be good spiritual guides, fearing you, hating covetousness, and teaching not the doctrines of men, but the doctrines of God. And we pray this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.